By now, you've probably found Mark chapter 12, and if you have, I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word from Mark 12, beginning in verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since, she, since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Please be seated. And now, O Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we come to this text, I've titled it today, Don't Be Mistaken About Heaven. Don't be mistaken about heaven. The ESV ends verse 27 with Jesus saying, You are quite wrong. I almost called it, don't be quite wrong, or are you quite wrong? We don't want to get this wrong. It's obviously very important. As a pastor, I've been approached in a number of circumstances with questions about the afterlife, questions about heaven. And of course, as you would imagine, oftentimes it comes, the majority of those times, at an incredibly sensitive time in people's lives. When they've lost a loved one, or perhaps they're facing the prospect of losing a loved one. And I find myself relying on the Holy Spirit. Some of you pastors in the room will understand what I mean here. For wisdom and discernment on how to answer some of these questions. Like sometimes the moment is not right to, to go into some of the greater, finer details about what they're asking. It sometimes depends on the... Uh, the importance of the question or the, the weight of the question or potential error maybe that they have. And so there are times when in God's wisdom, I believe I'm pastorally waiting for a better time, if you will, to share some important things about heaven or about the afterlife. And by God's providence, I believe this is a time like that. Today's message is a good opportunity for us to discuss heaven where we're not particularly involved in one person's life or one person's sorrow or sadness. This is us expositionally, verse by verse, walking through scripture. And in God's timing, this text is about the resurrection. This text is about heaven. Thankfully, I'm able to bank on the fact that there will be appropriate times 
And praise God, we have that today. So we have the Sadducees. It begins our text in verse 18. And let's start today's message with their major mistake. The Sadducees' major mistake. What was the mistake, you ask? They did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Some of you, yes, thank you, thank you. Some of you actually groaned and laughed at that last week also, and for that I say thank you for your consistency. Um, You will have opportunities to participate as we continue in the message today. All right, so the Sadducees, a little background. They arose in the second century BC before Christ was born during the Maccabean Revolt, closely associated with the aristocracy, kind of the upper class, the priestly classes, and they accepted as scripture only the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. They did not believe in the resurrection, future judgment, the existence of angels or demons or spirits. And it was out of that mistaken understanding about the afterlife and about supernatural things that they came with this question to Jesus. It was a trick question that they chose that was more than likely one that they had used to stump the Pharisees, their counterparts. I'm sure more than one Pharisee had fallen to this riddle, this theological trap, if you will. It reminds me, this question that they ask is so convoluted of one of those questions you get on a standardized test. Some of you students have been taking tests and it's like, or like a long word problem in math that some of you love and it just gets you confused. Here's an example. Maggie lives on a street with 10 houses. The houses are numbered one through 10. If Maggie adds up all the house numbers that are lower than hers, the total is three times her actual house number. In which house does Maggie live? And you're like, what? I'm so confused right now. I don't even know what we're talking about. Now, some of you tracked me very closely and you can come give me the answer afterwards. All right. I'll give you a little hint. The number is in 20. The number is in 20. 20 has the number. All right. Now that you're thoroughly confused, we'll move on with the text. But this is the kind of question, right? It's like one of those word problems. Like, Jesus, if you got this person and he, he marries and then they marry and then they marry and they marry, at the end, what's going to happen? All right. So the question is about leveret marriage. Leveret is the Latin word for brother-in-law. This question is over a text in Deuteronomy chapter 25, about brother-in-laws caring for uh, the widow of their brother. So here it is in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So this text, its purpose in God's law was to preserve the family name and to preserve an inheritance for this woman and their children. It's also, incidentally, a crucial aspect of the story in the book of Ruth. Many of you will recognize that. Well, the Sadducees, who make the mistake of not believing in the resurrection, that's why they're 
sad, you see. Uh, you're getting it. Uh, <laughs> out of this mistaken belief, they use a rhetorical tool with Jesus. Uh, some of you have taken rhetoric. I'm curious, has anybody taken like a formal rhetoric class? They used to teach it back in the day, right? All right, so rhetoric. It's called reductio ad absurdum, all right? And that's a fancy way of saying taking an argument to the absurd levels, all right? And uh, Greg Kokel in his book called Tactics, if you've ever seen or heard of that book, I recommend it. It's a good way of engaging in conversations with people. He calls that same rhetorical device taking the roof off taking the roof off. It's taking something to such an extreme that somebody can see a perceived logical fallacy. And so the Sadducees think that if you take the roof off of this argument and you go to the extreme of seven guys that all line up and none of them have a child, that that will be proving to the fact that in the resurrection, there will be chaos. Nobody would know whose this was. And so it must mean the resurrection, therefore, is not true. Jesus turns to them after they ask this question and says in verse 24, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus doesn't pull any punches here, right? It's not like, well, I think you might be a little bit off on your thinking here. You know, it's just, no, you don't know the scriptures you claim to believe, And you don't know the power of the God you profess to worship. And not only does he say you're wrong here, he gives them two reasons why they're mistaken. So let's look at the two reasons why the Sadducees were mistaken. First, they did not know the scriptures. He's he's like, you know that book of Moses? You know that Pentateuch, that thing you claim to be an expert on? They were experts on the first five books of the Bible. Before the introduction of the uh, chapters and verses, uh, teachers would often refer uh, to places in uh, a passage by like the name of the passage. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He says, in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush. And so they're expected to know that he's in Exodus 3. Like he's just kind of setting them up, right? So let's point you there. When God reveals himself and who he is to you in the Pentateuch, what does he say? Now just pause for a moment and recognize the wisdom of Christ here because he goes to the only place of the Bible that the Sadducees would have agreed was truly scripture. So he goes to a place that they are going to agree is authoritative for them. And that was so wise because now he's letting them see it in their own text that they would affirm. And he says in that passage in Exodus 3, God reveals himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Well, by the time God was revealing himself to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long gone. They were dead physically. But God declares that he is their God. So God, Jesus argues, is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They didn't understand even the scripture they claimed to believe. But the second thing Jesus says about their mistakenness is that they don't know the power of God. By this, what I think he means is that they cannot fathom how the heavenly life can or will be different from the earthly life. For the Sadducees, all they could think that the heavenly life would be like 
is an extension of the exact same thing as life on earth. There was no room for considering that even our deepest and strongest relationships in this life will be transcended to be the kind of relationship that we will experience in glory. One of my favorite passages of scripture, and one that is certainly pertinent to this not knowing the power of God about the afterlife, is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. And Paul says, as it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I know that's probably not what I quoted because I did the NIV 84. That's what I learned it in. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Like it's beyond our wildest imagination, the kind of glory that will be revealed to us. So the Sadducees are sad for another reason. They don't believe in God's power to transform our lowly bodies into glorified resurrection bodies and to transform this existing heavens and earth into a new heavens and a glorious new earth. And that's why Jesus sets them straight as he does in verse 25. He says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As one commentator puts it, the earthly life is temporary. Therefore, it requires procreation to further life in the context of marriage for the continuance of life on this earth. But the heavenly life is eternal and thus no need for procreation. Marriage and reproduction belong to this earthly realm. But note that it is marriage specifically and not love, which Jesus declares to be unnecessary in heaven. To be clear, we will be our best selves. We will be the most lovable we've ever been. And as a result, uh, we will be more capable of loving and being loved by others than even we are today. Another commentator points out that this passage bothers some Christians. Yeah, it does. I, I think sometimes we read this, and this text is hard to understand. How is that possible? That the, the greatest relationship that I experience in this life will be transcended. But as he says, this passage bothers Christians who fear that their deep and meaningful relationships with their spouses, or maybe you're a child and you're like, wait, mommy and daddy, and it's like, you're confused by this. He says these, past, these spouses and these relationships nurtured over years won't continue. That not is, that's not the case. It's reading too far into what Jesus said. He didn't say that the relationship wouldn't exist. There's no need for procreation in eternity, so marriage in its present form won't exist. But we will have relationships in God's presence, and those relationships will be profoundly deeper than anything we can experience in this life. In other words, our relationships with our Christian spouses and families will not be less intimate, they will be more intimate. We will have a greater depth of relationship with our families, our Christian uh, spouses, our Christian children. It will continue on in eternity in a deeper and a more glorious way than we can fathom and then we can understand. 
not only would I argue, will our relationships be better, but everything will be better. Some people, influenced by popular depictions of heaven, they get this idea of heaven being like, you know, the little angel on a cloud and kind of working on your harp music all day long. And they think of heaven as boring because they can't imagine what they would do or what it would be like. I want to dispel some of that today. The Sadducees have proved something for us. They've proven that you can be deeply religious and deeply wrong. They were deeply religious, but they were mistaken and misguided about eternity and heaven, which leads me to this question, and I say it lovingly, are you mistaken? Could it be possible that you are mistaken about the afterlife? Is your vision of heaven, that picture of cherubs and harps and floating on clouds forever? Do you have low expectations of what heaven will be like? Do you have a low expectation of the depth of relationship you will have with others? Do you think heaven will be boring? And if so, could it be that your mistakenness about heaven is for the same reasons? Could it be for the same reasons that you are mistaken? And so I ask, do you know the scriptures? And secondly, do you know the power of God? Pretty straightforward outline, isn't it, today? Right here from the text. Do we know the scriptures? And do we know the power of God? Danny Aiken writes, quote, Misinterpreting the scriptures inevitably leads to a distorted view of God And it always leads to our view of that God being too small and too impotent to be the God of the Bible. If you don't get the scripture right about God, your view of God will be lower and lesser than what it should be. And consequently, we won't understand that this God of the universe who had the power to infinitely create the planet we are on now, we have a glimpse into what he can do. And yet he promises that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can conceive what he's capable of doing. So it seems to me a remedy or the remedy for an anemic vision of heaven is to know the scriptures and resolve to know the power of God. So as we close with these two points, first, let's resolve to know the scriptures. Specifically, know what the Bible says about heaven. Hear me clearly. Not what a best-selling book says. Not what you imagine it will be like. Know what scripture says. I found a list in the commentary called Exalting Jesus in Mark. It's a great series, by the way. It's not too technical for anyone to understand. So if you're looking for a companion to your Bible reading in a particular book that you're struggling to understand, Exalting Jesus in that book is a great place to turn as a possibility. But here's a list that I found and I want to share it with you. And I'm going to kind of run through these quickly. So if you want to see me later, you can either see me here or you can just go to Exalting Jesus in Mark and find the same list, but make little notes on maybe some things that you didn't think or you didn't understand clearly about heaven as I go through these points quickly today. First, about heaven. Heaven is being prepared by Christ himself. It's being prepared by Christ. John 14, 3, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The groom is making a room and adding to the father's house for the bride to come and join. Number two, heaven is only for those who have been born again. Heaven is for those who have been born again. This is scripture, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so I would ask you, are you born again? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation? Read John chapter 3. Come and speak with me. If you say, what does it mean to be born again? I'd be very glad to have that conversation with you. But scripture is very clear. Heaven is reserved for those who are born again. Number three, heaven is described as a glorious city. Revelation 21 describes its walls built of jasper. The city was pure gold like clear, like clear glass. <laughs> Number four, heaven will shine with and be lighted by God's glory. Again, Revelation gives us a glimpse. The city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It will be gloriously resplendent with the glory of Christ in light. Number five, heaven has the throne of God at its center. It will be that which we worship, and he will be the center of heaven. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God's throne will be the center of heaven. Six, heaven is a place of holiness. Revelation 21, nothing unclean will enter into heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Number seven, heaven is beautiful. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. The perfection of all beauty in eternity. Number eight, heaven is a place of perfection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when the perfect comes, anticipating a time when the imperfect will pass away. He says the partial will pass away. We know in part now, we will know fully then. And heaven will be a place of perfection. Number nine, heaven is joyful. This is one of my favorite scriptures to go to in a funeral service. Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with uh, joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. At your right hand, the psalmist says, are pleasures forevermore. To understand this is to know that the source of our joy for eternity is God. Listen, if you do not delight in him, if your soul takes no satisfaction in him here, you will be sorely disappointed in the hereafter. Because God is the source of the joy. At your right hand, the psalmist says, are eternal pleasures forevermore. That doesn't sound boring to me. Eternal pleasures forever. 
at his right hand. R.C. Sproul says this about heaven. We don't understand the depth of joy and delight that God has prepared for people in heaven. If you use your imagination and try to think of the greatest possible experience that you will have in heaven, take that and multiply that joy that you will feel by a million and you will still have only begun to appreciate what God is preparing for people in heaven. Our existence there will be filled with joy far exceeding that which even as the case today, a marriage relationship can provide in a fallen world. Joy exceeding and eternal. Number 10, heaven is a place for all eternity. For all eternity. The psalmist said, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's eternal. It is forever. Number 11, heaven has no night. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. It is the ultimate daylight savings time. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. We will have no more night in the light of our Savior. I love that song, by the way. Look that one up. No more night. I think David Phelps sings a version of that. It's pretty good. Number 12, heaven is filled with singing. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 representative of God's people who had been redeemed from the earth. Revelation 14, 3, heaven is filled with singing. Here's a little clue. If you find singing on earth, praises of God to be a little boring, you will be sadly disappointed in heaven because we will sing and we will sing and we will sing praises to him for all of eternity. And I'll tell you this, if you've never been a part, uh, this is a little glimpse. When we gather together with two, 300 people, we hear the joy of corporate singing. Have you ever been with 10,000 or 20,000 singing? Oh, it's amazing. And then just imagine the multitudes and multitudes lifting their voices in, in unison and in song to the Lamb of God. Heaven will be a wonderful place of singing. I love that. By the way, my first calling is my eternal calling. I was a worship pastor for 15 years. My, one of my favorite verses is Psalm 13, 6. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me, and that will never change. I'll tell you one of the reasons why I invest time in memorizing scripture, why I love preaching the word of God, is because the word of God is eternal. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Singing the word of God. Invest in things that are going to last forever. Jesus says, store up your treasures in those kinds of places, not on the earthly barns. Don't get all excited about what can be burnt and stolen and will go to dust. You will take none of it with you. Invest in singing. Invest in the word. These things are forever. Heaven number 13 is a place of wonderful service. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We will serve King Jesus and we will work. Work will be redeemed. Work was before the fall. Work was only cursed by the fall. 
Brothers and sisters, there will be things to do. It won't be boring. And some of you will learn a new trade. Some of you will do amazing things that you've never even imagined was possible by you. I mean, I know you've heard the studies about like dissecting Einstein's brain or whatever it was. And they're like 10% of it was used. Just imagine the craftsmanship and the creativity that we will see on display when God reveals more to us and we are in his presence forever, serving him and glorifying him with our work. So these are some of the ways that we can learn more about what the scripture says. And I encourage you, resolve to know what the Bible says. Don't know more and don't know less. Stick to scripture. How many of you have heard, as an example, someone say when their loved one dies, that they turned into an angel? Well, let's get back to what does the scripture say? This is that time. Remember, I'm not talking about any specific case here. This is for all of us to correct that thinking. Jesus doesn't say in heaven they will be angels. He says they will be like the angels insofar as they're not procreating. Insofar as we will have glorious bodies. We won't be angels. We will be like the angels. So this is what I mean by avoiding error on the afterlife by sticking to the word of God. But secondly, resolve also to know the power of God. Know the scripture and know the power of God. And hear me, the power of God is no more clearly on display than in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee, the down payment and we are told in scripture, the first fruits of our own resurrection and glorification. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. No hope for us. The power of God on display in Jesus Christ. Of this resurrection power, the Sadducees were clearly ignorant. So I beg of you, let it not be so among us. The power of God to raise Jesus from the dead is our only hope. And it is the sure and certain foundation of our faith. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. God raised the Lord, that would be Jesus, and will also raise us up by his power. There it is. Right in one sentence from the word of God. God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Resurrection hope is central to the Christian faith. Every Sunday is a reminder of Resurrection Sunday that we'll celebrate two weeks from today. Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, how many of you have read this before? Then we are of all people most to be pitied. If your hope in Christ is like the Sadducees' hope, that stinks. You're to be pitied. I pity the fool who follows Christ for this life only. Now, hear me. This life is glorious here. It, it is. There's peace through suffering. There is hope in the midst of trial. But this life alone will not give it back to you. The glory of Christianity is the glorious hope of the resurrection. So don't be like a Sadducee because you will be sad, you see. You will be very sad if your hope is only in this life. But he goes on in verse 20. But 
In fact, and yes, I would argue it is a matter of historical fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Comparing Adam and comparing Christ, he says in verse 22, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. You're in Adamness, gets you death. You're in Christness, gets you life. Which one are you going to be? Put your faith in Christ alone and be guaranteed the resurrection of the dead. Paul says in, to the church in Rome, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that would be the spirit of God, the Father. If the spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, hear it? Life to your mortal bodies. Not a soul, your mortal body, this, flesh and blood. If the Spirit is in you, then Christ is dwelling in you, and God will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The power of God to raise Jesus is the power to raise us. And so, that leads me to this question, what will our resurrection bodies look like? That's a fun one. Another good one from, Exodus, uh, from Exalting Jesus in Mark. Again, this list uh, you can find there, but it's important. First of all, our glorified bodies will be recognizable. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he was with the disciples, and we are told in Luke 24, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He was recognizable. Jesus' glorified body after his resurrection, which is the first fruits of ours, first in kind like ours, they recognized him and so did the many other witnesses. The disciples had no doubt they were beholding the risen Jesus of Nazareth. Number two, they will be like Christ's body. Maybe I should have flipped those because that's the point. All right? if, if, if they're like Christ's body, they'll be recognizable. 1 John 3 and 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like Christ. Number three, they will not be limited by space. This is, again, Going off of, if they're like Christ's glorified body, Jesus apparently is in and out of rooms with the doors locked. Eight days later, John 20, verse 26, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Don't ask me how. That's why it's greater than our minds can conceive. But I think our minds can conceive of that. And it's greater than that. So just live with that. That's cool. All right. They will not be limited. Number four, they will be eternal. The best part, second Corinthians five, one through five, this tent that is our earthly home will be destroyed. Our, our flesh and blood will die, but we have a building from God. The promise we know that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul goes on to say in this tent, we groan, Amen or oh me. <laughs> Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. There it is again. Being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit. Are you connecting the dots in the text? Romans, this text, he has given us the spirit as a guarantee. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus will also give life to your mortal bodies. That is our guarantee. The promise of the Holy Spirit in us gives us the hope of eternal life. Number five, our glorified bodies will be glorious. It's like defining it with the same word, all right? So it's sown in dishonor, Paul says. It's raised in glory. It's sown. He's talking about the body like a seed. It's like a seed. So you know how like you sow seeds in your garden or you sow a a fruit seed or some sort of seed and it looks kind of like not very notable, kind of small and insignificant, and you put it into the ground, and what comes up is glorious. Something of the same kind, but amazing and glorious. And Paul talks about our body like a seed, sown in dishonor, laid into the ground in weakness, raised in power. If our earthly bodies in their dishonor are capable of the kind of pleasure we experience, then follow with me. How much more will a glorified body be capable of pleasure? At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Jonathan Edwards says it like this, quote, In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall, be, shall put the spirits of the body into such emotion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. End quote. Listen, friends, hear me. No one will be disappointed in any way when we get to heaven. You will not be disappointed. No one will be deprived of one thing that is necessary for maximum joy, optimal happiness, and complete satisfaction, all of which is made possible by the glorification of these Bodies that God created. Number six, they will have no pain. Can I get a glory hallelujah? There are people out there that I know suffer with chronic pain, chronic illness and hurt. Scripture says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. And here it is from the word of God nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And number seven, they will not die. The last enemy to be destroyed, Paul says, is death. Christ will put death to death when he returns. Number eight, they will not hunger or thirst. They shall hunger no more, Revelation 7, 16, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And number nine, they will not sin. We will not have the fallen nature anymore predisposing us to uncleanness 
or anything detestable or false. Again, Revelation 21, 27, because we will be forever his. Friends, heaven is real. And what we will be at the resurrection of the dead is nothing short of glorious. I hope this excursion through scripture has helped you realize the glory of what we will be like. So resolve to know the scripture. Resolve to know the power of God. And if you are not sure that you will spend eternity in heaven, might I add one third thing? Resolve to know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord today. Repent of your sin. Put your faith and trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and follow after him. And close with John 11 and verse 20 through 26. Lazarus had passed away. He waited several days and then he went. And this is what is recorded for us from the apostle John. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She was obviously not a Sadducee. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit living in us and moving in us, affirming in us the truth of your word, illuminating the scripture to us and pointing us to Jesus Christ as the only way to eternity. You've given us the Spirit as a guarantee of the hope of our resurrection in eternity. So Lord, I pray that your Spirit would move in the hearts of believers would give the assurance that you promised from your word as the Holy Spirit takes these words that I've shared, these scriptures that I've shared and awakens and excites the hearts of believers to say, yes, amen. That's true of me. God, I pray that you would help us to live in the resurrection hope glory in the hope of eternity. Because in so doing, we magnify and glorify the resurrection of our Savior who guarantees the resurrection of our bodies for us. We thank you that Jesus did not stay dead. Oh, Father, thank you for sending Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. But Lord, thank you also that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, and holy life And therefore, he was resurrected, vindicated by the spirit of holiness on the third day. Father, because he lives, we too will live for eternity.
God, give us this hope. Give us this perspective. Help us to realize in the trials and the sufferings we face that in light of eternity, as Paul says in Romans, they are light and momentary. It doesn't feel that way when all we think of is this life. But if we allow our minds to go to your word and go to the hope of forever, then we can endure by your grace and by your strength and your power these light and momentary trials that are working for us a weight of glory that will be revealed at the last day. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in that hope, live in that hope. Help us to enjoy you now, to find pleasure and joy in you. May we not find our fleeting pleasures of this world uh, satisfactory any longer. May we delight in you, Father. Help us to tune our hearts to the things of eternity, to the things that last. Help us to consider the souls of our neighbors, souls of our families, children. May we be mindful of eternity. And as I hear uh, other brothers in this church say, I want you to be in heaven with me. May that be a constant theme of our song, of our lives. I want you to be there with me. I know I'm going. Help us to be evangelists for the glory of heaven, the glory of God, and the hope of eternity because of what you've done for us at Calvary. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.